if a e-commerce mastermind, which is culture community of founders that are coming on board and uh, sharing best practices and an acquirer of e-commerce brands, if those two entities were to have a baby, that would equal society brands because we're building a culture, a community, an ecosystem, a society of founders that are staying on board post-acquisition. But we are very much acquiring the brand. We're offering them cash at close, but then we're also offering them rolled equity into our parent company so we could share the wealth with those founders that are helping us get to where we ultimately believe that we're going to be someday, which is a multi-billion dollar company. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Michael Serpilla, the co-founder and CEO of Society Brands. Society Brands, which is based in Canton, Ohio, is a tech-enabled consumer products company that acquires e-commerce native brands and powers them with a global growth platform, scaling and evolving them into household brands. They provide meaningful liquidity for the founders of each acquisition while allowing those founders to stay on board at Society Brands itself, building out a community of entrepreneurs who help one another reach new heights. In addition, these founders have the ability to roll equity into Society Brand's parent company so that they can enjoy a second exit down the road that may likely be even larger than their first. Michael, who grew up here in Ohio, has been in and around retail his entire life with extensive M&A experience throughout his career and has been part of multiple business ventures where he's primarily focused on organic growth. He founded a financial services wholesale agency with a team of 40 and built it to a multi-million dollar business. And in addition, he led a population health management business and scaled it from zero to $150 million in revenue within five years. Under Michael's leadership as CEO, Society Brands has raised $205 million in capital to continue their rapid consolidation in the e-commerce sector, with many completed and successful acquisitions since their inception. This was an awesome conversation. Michael does an excellent job explaining what the world of e-commerce looks like, how it has evolved over time, Society Brands' role to play within this Goliath market, and the way that he's been able to rapidly scale this organization over time. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Serpilla after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. To kick things off, from the bird's eye view, 
how would you describe Society Brands? Yeah, so Society Brands is a tech-enabled consumer products company. Um, so if you think of an e-commerce, Procter & Gamble, or Unilever, that's essentially what we're building. We grow by acquiring e-commerce native brands generally uh, that sell their products on either Amazon, Shopify, or other e-commerce marketplaces. We offer the founders cash at close, offer them liquidity, and also offer them some rolled equity into Society Brands' parent company. And we ask that founder to stay on board post-acquisition. So if just the quickest way possible is, um, you know, tech-enabled CPG companies, the, the simplest way to put it. Excellent. So you, you've introduced a, a lot of ideas there that <laughs> I think we'll have to circle sure. back to and, and take one at a time, and, and we will. But, but to start, why did you find yourself starting this, this business in particular? How, how would you describe your, your own journey as an entrepreneur as it led up to the founding of Society Brands? And, and how did you, you know, navigate that, that maze of ideas before you found this vision for the, the future of e-commerce and M&A roll-up and, and just being in this, this space overall? One, I've, I've never lacked ambition. I've always been a, a very ambitious person uh, throughout the course of my career. And uh, actually in 2020, it was a hard year for you know, a lot of us and uh, due to COVID-19. And I, I had a population health management company that I was partners in. And that business was actually doing very well. And uh, my brother, Justin, was actually doing a roll-up in the PEO space. It's payroll processing, HR services, tax compliance, things like that. And he had acquired 26 companies, about $70 million of EBITDA within like a two and a half year period of time. And so I always had a vision of, of doing a roll-up with my brother because I realized uh, the fastest way to grow is through acquisition. You could essentially acquire your competitor and you could double the size of your company a lot faster than just simply through organic growth. So Justin and I, for actually a few years prior to starting Society, we would always talk about eventually doing a roll-up. And in 2020, I was getting a lot of Amazon boxes to my front door. My wife was ordering a lot of stuff on Amazon. <laughs> and I just simply asked myself a quick question. Is there going to be more or less products bought online 10 years from now than what there is today? I think that the answer that I came up with was a genius one. I think that us as consumers, um, we are certainly moving more and more towards e-commerce, less and less towards brick and mortar. So I started doing some research found some other companies that were essentially acquiring these e-commerce native brands. And the way that these other companies were going about it is they were acquiring the business and they were leaving the founder behind. That's how I like to put it. If you think of a typical e-commerce entrepreneur, you're not going to think of somebody that's maybe later in their life towards retirement age. They're, you're going to probably think of somebody that's around our age, Jeffrey, in their 20s, 30s, maybe 40s that after they sell their business, they're not going to retire and you know, sit on a beach somewhere for the next 30 or 40 years of their life. They're going to find something meaningful to do from a work perspective. So, that, so since that's the case anyway, there wasn't any acquirers of these e-commerce brands that we could find at the time that was having the founders stay on board post-acquisition, continue to keep on being the brand president for their P&L, so full P&L responsibilities, and then be part of an ecosystem, a mastermind of other founders that are staying on board post-acquisition as well, and running their P&L and, and uh, offering a shared resource model, but also being able to have these founders connect with uh, one another. One of the biggest benefits I've had in my career, Jeffrey, is 
is when I'm able to get in a room with other like-minded individuals that share the same views as what I do when it comes to business or a personal life or whatever it is, be able to really connect with those people. Obviously, we call those things masterminds. So in business, we call them masterminds anyway. So what we decided to do at Society at the very beginning is if an e-commerce mastermind, which is culture, community of founders that are coming on board and uh, sharing best practices, and an acquirer of e-commerce brands, if those two entities were to have a baby, that would equal Society Brands because we're building a culture, a community, an ecosystem a society of founders that are staying on board post-acquisition. But we are very much acquiring the brand. We're offering them cash at close, but then we're also offering them rolled equity into our parent company so we could share the wealth with those founders that are helping us get to where we ultimately believe that we're going to be someday, which is a multi-billion dollar company. So that was kind of the, the thought in the end of 2020. And then I was introduced to Sean Doherty, who's a co-founder with me. She's our chief operating officer. And she basically was the founder of a tech company called Mophie. So M-O-P-H-I-E. She was the co-founder of that. And uh, it was a $250 million top line revenue business. It was They sold a billion dollars of products online. And she ended up selling that company uh, several years back. So I in, was introduced to her. She has a ton of CPG expertise supply chain, inventory management, but then also a lot of brick and mortar retail as well, not just simply e-commerce. She sold her Mophie products in 130 different countries and 30,000 different retail doors. So I I asked Sean, I was like, hey, Sean, would you be a co-founder with me? You'll be the chief operating officer. I'll be the CEO. And then let's get to work and let's build something great together. So, So we ended up doing it together initially. We also had some other really great advisors um, and strategic investors uh, at the very beginning that, that we had uh, come on board with us. And it was actually a few months later that Justin, my brother, ended up leaving his corporate job and coming on board as a co-founder and president at Society Brands. He essentially saw this large pipeline of acquisitions that uh, Sean and myself and our head of M&A, Laurent, we had a very small team at the time. We essentially lined up a lot of acquisitions that were ready to close the biggest problem was we didn't have any capital yet. We actually didn't raise you know, the large amount of capital that we've raised today. But the biggest thing is, is the founders really believed in our story. And uh, Justin saw that there was uh, that founder buy-in and the fact that we were able to source a lot of deals because there's millions of these e-commerce brands. And Justin ended up quitting his corporate job and walking away from a lot and moving from Georgia back home to Ohio and uh, in starting society. And, and then we ended up um, doing a large capital raise. Uh, we ran a process with an investment bank. And then we got three different offers, one for $50 million, um, then two for $100 million. And then um, one of them, I-80 Group, uh, who's our lender today, um, ended up increasing their offer from 100 to $200 million. And uh, that was a really, really exciting opportunity. Great. They, they saw the vision. There was strategic alignment. It was a credit facility that we essentially got in place initially. And then we've raised, you know, well over $20 million of, of uh, equity since then. And then we started doing acquisitions. So we've done seven acquisitions so far. And, uh, you know, um, we're a pretty, pretty sizable company today. But that's kind of like the origin as to how we got started, how the idea uh, launched. 
again, lots of threads to to pull on there, and and I'll, we'll we'll do that in, in a moment. But I, I love the uh, the kind of original inspiration in a way almost coming from Amazon. I think Bezos talked about, you know, betting on those things that are stable in time and and what's not going to change. So that that's kind of very interesting to to think about. So I think it would be helpful to do a little bit of stage setting here and understanding, you know, wh- what the market looks like today and, and how it evolved. You know, I, I think we've we've all heard this word or set of words, I guess, thrown around today, the the Amazon aggregator, right? But like what is an aggregator? How big is this market? You mentioned, you know, millions of of potential, you know, businesses selling products over the internet. What's kind of the the history lesson on the evolution of this? When did third party sellers come into play? Why did they come into play? Why does Amazon have them? Just give us a sense here for a little bit of the backdrop to understand the the world in which society brands is operating. Yeah. So there's there's a, a portion of, of the world that thinks that Amazon still only sells books. And then there's another portion of the world that thinks that Amazon sells mainly just their own products. So if you go on Amazon, you think that you're actually buying products from Amazon. And although there's a little bit of that, most of the time, two-thirds of Amazon sales are made up by third-party sellers. So essentially, it's a whole bunch of consumer product brands. Two-thirds of it is consumer product brands that are essentially using the Amazon platform as a marketplace. And then there's also this first-party seller side, which is essentially still a, a consumer product brand, but they're wholesaling it to Amazon. And then Amazon is then retailing it on, on their own platform. So what we focus on is third-party sellers. There's about two two and a half million third-party sellers on the Amazon platform. But we are actually, we don't consider ourselves an Amazon aggregator. We uh, consider ourselves a tech-enabled consumer products company. The thought of just aggregating stuff, just buying stuff, I think is an overly simplistic way of looking at what society brands does. And I'm not saying that there's not great Amazon aggregators out there. So it's uh, because there's a lot of very good uh, aggregators out there, I'm sure. But what we like to think of ourselves is, again, a tech-enabled CPG company, a modern-day e-commerce Procter & Gamble. And one of the reasons is we're not just focused on Amazon. Uh, We also acquire brands that are heavily focused on direct-to-consumer. There's about 1.5 million Shopify storefronts. And we're uh, very much in the uh, process right now of looking very seriously at some direct-to-consumer brands. And um, we've built uh, true technology. Our technologies, we've coined it as Evo because all we believe that all societies evolve. So Evo is short for evolution. So we are very much technology-driven as well. And when it comes to the aggregator space, though, I mean, there's been billions of dollars raised to essentially acquire these e-commerce brands. You have Thrasio, that was obviously the the very first one out there that really uh, trailblazed, which was an innovator in this space. And then there was others that followed. What we tried to do was say like, okay, where is the market going and, and where are there others that are doing things a certain way? And how could we be different? What's our unique value proposition when you think of operating brands? integrating brands, and then also the unique value proposition to founders that are looking to sell. So um, that's a little bit of the origin and a little bit about the e-commerce marketplace as a whole. 
And if you flip that script just a little bit here to talk about from the the builder's vantage point, the, the actual person who is an e-commerce store builder, what do, what do those folks look like? How do they get their start? Who are they, generally speaking? What, what do these businesses look like? Yeah, so a lot of them are solopreneurs. And I, I, like I, I think of brands that we look at are anywhere from $3 million of revenue to $20 million of revenue. I actually know a founder that has $20 million of revenue and he, the founder is the only employee of that brand. Now we didn't acquire that brand, but, but, but that's an example of in the e-commerce space, it's a very efficient operating model. Unlike other businesses where you need, in order to be a $20 million business, you might need 50 employees and there's a lot of operational overhead. The thing that's great about e-commerce is it's, normally lean OPEX, uh, lean operational overhead. And you can generate really high profit margins. So, so that's, uh, that's one thing that I would say is, is common with most e-commerce entrepreneurs is they don't really have a big team. Most of them are either younger in spirit or younger in age is just a generality. Um, I can think of several exceptions to that. Um, I know many founders that are older, but that's you know, if we're talking about generalities, it's normally 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. And how they got their start, normally they just had a concept. Um, they, they found a unique way of looking at the world uh, through the lens of a physical product that they didn't see others doing. And they just were scrappy and they just tried to fill, fill that void. And most of them didn't have, you know, a high level of expertise when it comes to e-commerce or digital marketing, like those were things that they learned over time for the most part. Again, if I'm making a general statement. So those are, those are some of the, the commonalities. Another commonality with uh, e-commerce founders is they do like to have some level of connectivity to other e-commerce founders. Most of the, the brand founders that we've talked with are either in a mastermind right now or have been in masterminds previously and they like to have a level of connectivity. And then the last thing is they like to have, um, a lot of them do like to have work-life balance. You, you've probably heard of the, the book, Four Hour Work Week sure, sure. by, I believe, uh, uh, Tim Ferriss. So like um, a lot of them are founders that, that were able to, to scale a business and build it up to a place where a lot of it is automated and they could really have a good quality of life and balance in their lives. So that's another commonality that I would say is consistent with many of the founders that we talk with. So one thing I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned Thrasio, and if you went back to the early days of, I guess, what at that point might just be the aggregator space, why is there still space for a firm like society and industry that became so notoriously competitive? What, what did these companies miss albeit, you know, having trailblaze the, the industry? Well, a lot of the companies like Thrasio, I'm very much a believer in. I, I think that they're going to perform. And I actually talked to some of the Amazon aggregators and other e-commerce aggregators, and I love hearing how well they're doing. And, and that kind of ties in, Jeffrey, to, to your question, because it's such a large marketplace. There is room for many, many winners. I'm going to put this in perspective for you real quick. So when my brother Justin did the PEO roll-up, he was the head of M&A for this PEO. There was about 700 to 900 possible acquisition targets. 
My uncle, Johnny Serpilla, who's on our board, he uh, did a roll-up called Camping World. He was the president, uh, number two to uh, Marcus Limonis, the CNBC show, The Profit. And there was about 2,500 possible acquisition targets when it comes to RV retail stores. In this marketplace, 2.5 million on Amazon, 1.5 million on Shopify, and hundreds of thousands of other e-commerce marketplaces, if you kind of aggregate all the other e-commerce marketplaces. So the world has never seen this amount of market fragmentation. It is the most fragmented marketplace, I believe, that has existed. So when you look at that and you look at the $15 billion that was raised in this space to acquire e-commerce brands, if you put all that capital to work, we believe that it might take down 1% to 2% of the addressable market. So if you let that sink in for a second, like that is that we're very much in the infancy stages of a very large consolidation that will happen over a long duration of time. There will be winners. I strongly believe that society is definitely going to be a winner in the space, but there, just like any other industry, there will be losers as well. But um, the biggest key is having strong operational expertise. When you're growing through M&A, Jeffrey, it's really important that you focus on integration. What we focus on at society is integrating. We also try to not acquire too quickly. We are not going to acquire 100 brands within the next 12 months. And maybe there are some that could do that successfully. But for us, we like to focus on doing one acquisition a month is really what we try to focus on, anywhere from 12 to 15 acquisitions a year, and make sure that we integrate those brands operationally, financially, but then also the people. We, we want to make sure that the, that the people that are coming on board with that ac- acquisition are also integrated. So, so those are just um, some of the, the few differentiations and a and, uh, little bit of color to your question there. So I think it would be really interesting to, to zoom in here a bit and go through something like a, a case study of, of what happens in the real world practically from, from soup to nuts. And, and we can use that as a mechanism to explore some of these concepts. So I'm, I'll make up uh, an example here, but you know, I'm a, I'm a mom and pop shop and, and I have a, I don't know, a shower curtain business that I started five years ago and I'm selling on Amazon, I'm selling on Shopify. I'll, I'll make up a number too. I'm, I'm doing... 20 million in top line and 4 million in EBITDA. And just through my blood, sweat, and tears of learning, you know, e-commerce, I stumble upon society brands, <laughs> having listened to Lay of the Land podcast somewhere along the way and, you know, reach out and we end up connecting. How does this actually happen? The, the connection, the diligence, vetting from your side, the valuation, the, the merge, take us through that process. Yeah. So, so the very first thing, if, if, if you were that $20 million brand, $4 million of EBITDA, what we would do is you would get funneled to our M&A team. We have a head of M&A, Laurent Truk, and then we also have several other people on our M&A team. So just like anything, there's a funnel and there's a few key things that we focus on. So it's, it's not just simply the amount of revenue and profitability. We want to know that you're growing. So is your brand growing by at least 10% year over year? Are you at least 75% on e-commerce? It's okay if you have some brick and mortar, but we believe that it's important for society to be leaning into the future of commerce. So we want to know that you are either digitally native or focused heavily on e-commerce. 
at least 75% of your sales. And we also want to make sure that you um, aren't seeing any really big material margin compression when it comes to either marketing or supply chain. There's various different things in the P&L that we can see to where there's some margin compression. So, so, so that's kind of like a high level, like what we focus on is e-commerce native brands that are growing in profitability and at least hopefully staying the same in margin or possibly even expanding their margins. And then we kind of dive deeper because there's six different categories that we focus on at society. So we would then hope that you were obviously in one of those six categories. We'd ask you to sign an NDA. For those that don't know, it's non-disclosure agreement and it's a mutual NDA. So, um, so it's not just, it goes both ways. So we know that everybody is uh, not going to be sharing each other's information. And then we would send a diligence request asking for certain financial information, information about your product. It could be, uh, uh, then we do competitive landscape, understand the competitors in your space. And then we get a rough idea as to how your business is performing in comparison to your competition, but then also just general revenue and profitability trends. And then we um, price the acquisition to see what is a fair price for us to pay for that, uh, that given brand. It's generally a portion is cash at close. A portion could be an earnout. So the better that your brand does, the more you get paid from a cash perspective. And then almost always uh, we have um, an aspect of rolled equity where you are essentially becoming a shareholder in society brands. And as society brands gets more valuable, your rolled equity gets more valuable as well. You really want the founders to believe in that. So we, we do a pre-screen diligence that it's called, and then we present an offer to you. And then um, maybe you might say, well, I don't like this about the offer. And then, and then we kind of work through to kind of cater towards what your desires are, but then also what our convictions are. And hopefully we can meet somewhere that um, makes sense for both of us to sign what's called an, an LOI or a letter of intent. And signing that letter of intent offers society brands exclusivity. Um, normally, it's 60 days to 90 days of exclusivity for us to do deep dive diligence and really get a, a clear understanding as to how your business is performing. Because normally in pre-screen diligence, we're making certain assumptions that these various different things are true. And then post-LOI being signed, we're mainly just validating that what we believe to be true is true. And in our LOI, we're very transparent on if there are assumptions that we're creating, we let you know, here's the assumptions. That way you can let us know if those assumptions are accurate or not before you enter into exclusivity with us. All right. So then we get an LOI signed. Then there's this diligence process. And biggest thing that I would mention there is a Q of E, which stands for quality of earnings, which is basically us working with an accounting firm to make sure that your financials are what you represented that they are. Here's the revenue, here's every aspect of the P&L, and we can get a very clear understanding as to the profitability of the business. And if there's a Q of E miss or a quality of earnings miss, meaning that you represented that you were doing $4 million of EBITDA, but then after the Q of E, it's $3 million, and we were offering you this certain price, there's a chance that we're going to talk about it, right? Because, because we thought that the business was doing... 4 million and you would then turns out it's doing 3 million, right? So like there could possibly be a price adjustment or maybe the acquisition doesn't happen altogether. That's likely not the, where we would 
want to go, we would try to figure out like, hey, can we find a different price? Because here's the numbers and it's a little bit different than what initially uh, you had mentioned. And then we do product diligence and competitive landscape diligence further, operational diligence. And then um, once we get through every ounce of the diligence process, Society Brands has what's called an investment committee. And then we go to our IC or our investment committee and look to get approval on that acquisition. And what I love about society's diligence process is the M&A team is not just operating in a black box where the M&A team is the only one that's making the decision and and really um, uh, diligencing every ounce of what's needed. It's actually a collaborative approach with our operations team, with our product team, with our revenue team. So each one of our department heads are actually diligencing their own area. Biggest reason we do that is we would never want a situation where our M&A team acquires a brand and then our operations team says, why did you acquire this company? Mm. We, we don't have the same conviction. We want to get buy-in before we ever do that acquisition. So we present that to our IC. Each department head essentially has an evaluation on various different things that they've diligenced. And then we end up moving to a vote with our investment committee to move forward. Assuming that we get that approval, then we negotiate actual definitive agreements because there's a letter, letter of intent, which is kind of more so high level, non-binding. And then there's the actual definitive docs. And then we move forward with those definitive docs in good faith with you, Jeffrey, and you would uh, likely include your external counsel. So you'd hire an attorney to represent you. And then our attorney, our external counsel and yours would work together you and our M&A team would work together and uh, we would come to terms on the definitive agreements. Once we get to that place, that's when the fun starts because we get to have a closing day or a closing call. Mm. And those are really, really fun to be a part of because um, after we've gone through the diligence, which sometimes is a stressful moment for a founder to go through, we go through that and, and uh, we go through the legal negotiations. Again, can sometimes be a little stressful. We're now at that place where we've made it. And, and we get on this closing call where the attorneys are releasing the signature pages of everything. And that is a, there's an opportunity for us to celebrate with that founder because they did something, what I believe is the American dream, where you start something from scratch, you take something from your head, an idea that you had, you manifest it in the world and you really are adding value. And then you're able to sell that for oftentimes millions of dollars. That's a really, really exciting moment uh, for a founder. So we like to celebrate with them. And one of the ways that we go about celebrating with them post-acquisition is we do a press release with them. One of the coolest press releases that we had, it was at the in the Canton Repository. So you can see here, <laughs> uh, Sir Pilla Brothers launched Society Brands in Stark County. Society has been very fortunate. To, uh, we've been in Forbes tr- twice, Cranes, Cleveland.com, all the local I'm very proud of, and also the national I'm very proud of. But one thing that's really cool is in your hometown, when your hometown puts uh, an article about you, that's something that that, um, really hits home. And that's how I felt about all kind of the Northeast Ohio publicity that we've gotten. And obviously love the the Forbes uh, and, and, and that publicity as well. But with that, what we end up doing is for that founder post-acquisition, we do a press release 
not highlighting Michael Serpilla, not highlighting society, but we try to do a press release in their hometown of ABC company sells to society brands for millions of dollars or whatever the headline is. And then that founder contributes there and it's their face on that headline. And we like to honor them and promote them in their own local community. And then we tend to do national press releases as well. So long-winded there, there's obviously a lot that goes into it, but that's kind of from soup to nuts from the very beginning to, you know, when the acquisition happens and everybody's celebrating. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you for peeling back the the curtain there on, on how the the sausage is is actually made. It's such a, a cool process. So in this hypothetical, I'm really pumped now. It's a privilege to be part of the society brand team as a founder. We've done a press release and it, and it actually goes back to one of the threads I, I wanted to pull on because you had mentioned this really kind of foundational strategy of retaining brand founders post-acquisition, giving them ownership in society brands itself. And I know you had mentioned P&G as, as, as a model there, but what came to mind when you first mentioned that was most aspirationally, perhaps something like Berkshire, where Buffett and Munger acquire these folks onto the team and then basically delegate at that point to the point of abdication and, and really let those entrepreneurs set their own direction and standards, but able to pull from the, the shared resources of, of the parent organization. Can you talk a little bit about the thinking behind this, this approach of, of shared ownership and, and how, how, it's, how it's played out so far? Yeah, so it's played out really well, but there's we have to be really intentional about it because there's two different extremes. One is the founder checks out altogether and then the company takes over. And that is one extreme. And then the other extreme is that the founder is just operating on an island of their own and nobody at Society Brands is, is participating. We don't do either one of those extremes. It is really focused on a collaboration with the founder and Society Brands. So what the founder does is they are the brand president post-acquisition and they oversee, they have full P&L responsibility. But Society Brands offers them a shared resource model. So we offer them marketing services, new product introductions, if they're wanting to launch new products, operational, inventory management, supply chain. A lot of the things that normally the founder was doing, because again, oftentimes they're solopreneurs, we're offering them a shared resource model. But what we need the founder for is their tribal knowledge, their heart, their expertise. Because what ends up happening oftentimes in private equity is the moment that that founder leaves, then the heart of that business falls apart. And what we need there is that vision, that direction on on where they've taken the brand so far. And we want them to continue to keep on driving that P&L, but we want to take over a lot of the services, the kind of minutia work that they uh, were probably doing previously. One is a very easy one, which is accounting and back office. That's a very easy thing for us to take over. Uh, We have to take that over regardless. You know, we do private audits every single year. So with that, like it's important for us to kind of have those controls in place, but then also marketing, omni-channel. Like if we're looking to bring a brand, um, not just simply from the direct consumer site, but they also want to sell on Amazon or vice versa or on walmart.com. We have experts that they could tap into doing that. So what we try to do at the very beginning is have a, a shared vision for 
where the brand is today and where we can collectively take it. That founder is the heart behind that vision, but they are tapping into a whole bunch of resources and services that we're essentially offering to them. You mentioned there, you know, back office, omnichannel marketing, Amazon expertise. I'm curious as as these founders onboard with, with society brands, how you think about taking their brand and and scaling it, right? Taking it to a level of of exponential growth. You know, do you think about things like the synergies between these different brands outside of the the tactical, you know, lines of of responsibility within the business? Is that interesting? Is that not interesting? What what are the things that that you guys are doing behind the scenes there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, if it makes sense to doing uh, cross selling initiatives, that's something that we certainly would do if they're in similar or adjacent categories. Another thing that we've done is we've consolidated warehouses because we had uh, one warehouse in one part of the the country, and then an adjacent state there was another warehouse. Well, it didn't, one of those warehouses was really, really well, well run and it was very clean and, and we really loved how it was operating. And then the other one needed some TLC and wasn't uh, maybe as efficient as the other one. So what we did is we, we moved this warehouse over to this one and we were able to save money and we were able to consolidate things and, and really kind of create synergies amongst those brands. So it's not just simply cross-selling initiatives to where when there is an opportunity that we certainly do, but um, also consolidating physical locations as well, if that's something for us to do and other potential cost synergies. I'm curious, just with all the, the businesses that you've both got to you know, incorporate it as part of, of the society brands family and, and just you know, writ large, all the others that, that you've seen with one of the more sophisticated e-commerce platforms. What have been some of the the strangest or, or most non-obvious things you've heard or seen someone do that leads to to better revenue or optimizing e-commerce sales in in some way? So so here's one that is non-obvious and it's surprising that it's non-obvious, but founders rarely ask their suppliers for better prices. So in other words, if if you have a relationship with your supplier, and most founders don't develop truly a relationship with their supply chain. At Society, we try to cultivate a relationship with all of our suppliers. And the problem with not having that relationship is you could eventually get better pricing. And, and you could eventually um, do things like move the supply chain from, from China to Mexico. That's something that we've done. And it made sense for us to move the supply chain over there. So, so that's uh, supplier cost downs and, and negotiating with suppliers and really developing relationships with the suppliers. That is something that, that has been a low-hanging fruit thing that we were surprised that um, most founders weren't doing. So I would say that that is a low-hanging fruit thing. Another thing is, is a lot of e-commerce brands do what's called um, automated marketing campaigns, which is basically casting a really wide net amongst a whole bunch of various different keywords. So there's a whole bunch of keywords and they're trying to look for profitable ROAS. So ROAS stands for return on ad spend. So they're hoping that the average of all these keywords are gonna average out to something that's profitable. And five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, that could be the case where it's, it was just wildly profitable because e-commerce e was very new. 
in today's day and age, you've got to have more sophisticated marketing strategies on focusing on those keywords. So not just simply casting a wide net and just clicking a button and then you're hoping that it's going to be profitable. You need to manage and, and actually look at every single day, every single week, every single month, what keywords are performing. And the ones that aren't performing, stop spending on those and then put those dollars to the ones that are performing. And that might even seem like an obvious thing, right? Like, well, if this isn't profitable, then I'm, I'm not going to spend there. Um, I'm going to put it over here. But with the automated campaigns, it's just automated. It is what it is. So like it casts amongst a, a whole bunch of different uh, keywords. So, so that's another thing that like we try to make a very data-driven approach when it comes to our marketing strategies. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of technology as well because you need to have the right technology. I mean, we have probably 50,000 marketing campaigns spitting off every single day at Society Brands. And the only way that we're able to manage all that is through technology. So if you don't have technology like we have Evo or other platforms then um, it would be very hard to be able to make those changes. Mm. You know, looking a little bit towards the the future here, um, you know, you'd mentioned scaling to maybe, a, you know, an acquisition per month is kind of the, the the target and broader growth strategy. I believe Society Brands may have had one of the largest early stage raises in Ohio's history here. So I, I'm curious, you know, when you think about what comes next, you know, at a higher level, what does success mean to, to you and, and the organization? And when you think about that, you know, what is the impact that you hope to have in retrospect and, and particularly, you know, here in the local regional ecosystem? So not to get too biblical for a second, but uh, um, one of my favorite Bible verses is to whom much is given, much is expected. And um, when I think of what you had just said there, Jeffrey, about one of the largest early stage raises in Ohio's history, I think of one word and I think responsibility. That is a tremendous amount of responsibility that myself and the rest of our team do not take lightly. I'm incredibly grateful for what we've done so far with society brands. But what we've done so far is nowhere in comparison to where we're headed. What I believe success is for us is to continue to keep on growing 12 to 15 acquisitions per year and eventually have an IPO. When you think of like economic financial success, that's, that's kind of what I would think of is, is doing acquisitions, growing the brands post-acquisition, partnering with great founders, and then eventually having some sort of IPO where the story for society won't end it's just beginning because as a public company, we then change the type of animal that we are. We're still an animal, but we're now a publicly traded company. And then we're further able to do more acquisitions, use our shares as currency and really make a big difference. So that's kind of like from a financial perspective, when I think of like just a humanitarian perspective of like what we're building and how we're adding value to society, I think we're adding value to founders. I would love to see a, a time where we have so many founders that we've impacted, that we've, we were able to partner with them, acquire their business, and they were able to make millions and millions of dollars from that transaction. But then we were also able to cultivate a whole bunch of relationships in the process. That's where business gets to be a lot of fun is when you're, you're partnering with people 
And then it no longer feels like work because you, you like the people that you're working with. You're connecting with the people that you're working with. And then you're also in some ways sharing life um, with the people that you're working with from the perspective of having company events and trips and things like that. I've benefited greatly in my life that way. So that would be another way that I feel like we're really going to add value. Then the last thing that I would mention, I'm sure that there's many more, but um, the last thing that I would say to that is how we're impacting consumers. We want to make sure that the products that consumers buy from society brands are the best products um, at a fair price. Um, We generally focus on high value products, products that the everyday consumer can purchase. There could be an exception to that rule every now and then, but we want to make sure that when you buy a product from society brands, that it's a highly rated product, that it's a brand that you eventually develop a trust with and a rapport with, and that also it's something that is at a fair price for the consumer. So those are kind of the things of like where I hope to see society go over the next several years. And in that same time frame. If you instead think about the risks, why would it be the case that, you know, the business did not grow by, by multiples if, if it turned out to be that way? You know, where, where do you think about the, the risks and, 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 and what, what it might be to falter? What would have gone wrong, both in the way the business is operating as well yeah. as potentially macro environment threats? So I would say that the biggest thing that we need to focus on as an organization is making sure that the companies that we acquire are growing post-acquisition. And we, we really have had a good amount of success with that. But we need to continue that success, not only on the brands that we've acquired so far, but the brands that we acquire for years to come. Because the fundamental truth that we have to answer for ourselves as an organization is, is that brand better with us versus without us? And if we can continue to keep on answering yes to that, that that brand is better with us than without us, then that should materialize itself with very strong organic growth and that the brands that we're acquiring are scaling and growing and we're adding value to them. So when I think of of the biggest, as you had called it, Jeffrey, risk uh, to society brands or any platform like ours is organic growth. You want to make sure that you're building an operating system that allows you to manage many companies under one umbrella, have the right leadership in place, have the right systems and processes in place. So post-acquisition, they're growing. If we have that growth in place, that is um, a really critical component. And um, at Society, um, my executive team knows this, but I I developed this acronym called RACO. Mm. That's R-A-C-O. And I try to like put blinders on what are the, the few things that make the biggest difference for us at society. And I think it's really these four things. One is raising capital. Obviously, we raised collectively well over $220 million at society brands. We're very fortunate and grateful for that. But there will be additional capital needs as the company grows. And, and that is something that we always need to make sure that we're doing a good job with. In the public markets, that is a huge aspect, having not only retail investors, but strong institutional investors as well. So one is raising capital. The second one is acquisitions. Make sure that we're acquiring great brands at fair prices for society. Then the next one is controlling costs. Um, You've heard of many uh, early stage companies that 
just they're growing, but they're not controlling their costs enough. And that's something that here in 2023, we've been blinders on, on making sure that we have our costs controlled at the corporate level, but then also the asset level. So that's number three. Then the fourth is the one that I actually started with, which is the organic growth, making sure that the brands that we are acquiring are are growing post-acquisition. So those are the four things that are what we need to be focused on. And um, as you had called it, a risk, because, you know, you need to make sure that you need to do uh, those four things really well. When, when you think about those, those four things, there, there is a, a sort of underlying 900 pound gorilla in the room risk. I, I feel like that, that is, is laden and, and touches all those in a way, which, which is Amazon. You know, it's kind of like the overall tax on the internet. Your margin is famously their opportunity. You know, how, how do you think about its presence on the internet? How do these e-commerce entrepreneurs think about it? I know also kind of hilariously in an analogy that I love Shopify is, you know, arming the rebels against the Amazon empire. But, you know, how do you think about those, those larger players in the space? So I, I think there's a few different schools of thought. One is like, look, I understand that Amazon um, has a, you know, they have a high level of control um, and they can change prices. And there's various different things that Amazon can do. Um, we generally think that Amazon has been a good partner, but but there there are some that think like, hey, regardless, let's just focus on Amazon. Let's just grow on Amazon. That's the only thing that we should focus on. There's the other school of thought, as you had mentioned, Jeffrey, the rebels on Shopify, just simply direct consumer. What we believe is a really balanced approach. And it doesn't mean that we get to that balance right away, by the way. If, if somebody is... If, if there's a brand that's 80% of their sales is on Amazon, 20% is on Shopify, we're not necessarily saying like, hey, let's focus on all of our focus on getting them off of Amazon. Because quite honestly, one of the low-hanging fruits could be that market that they've already proven themselves. How do we maximize that market and make sure that we get the most out of them, that market being Amazon? Because that's where there's most of the consumer uh, proof of concept is on Amazon for that brand that's 80-20. And, and so it could be uh, maximizing, but over time, we would want to see that brand get on target.com or walmart.com, definitely direct consumer. We love brands that have at least some level of direct consumer expertise and, and proof of concept. Then the same thing is true um, with a brand that we look at that's on Shopify. A few of the brands that we've looked at are almost entirely on Shopify. And, and we love that because we love the direct consumer, but we also want them to be able to take advantage of marketplace sales as well. So um, we, we do look at it as being a risk of like only focusing on one platform for the long term. But in a very short term period of time, we don't look at that as a big risk. But we think over a three year, five year period of time, it's really important for all of our brands to be able to sell in various different marketplaces. Of the things we have talked about, are there are there any that you feel are particularly important that we haven't yet uh, that you think you know we should as part of you know the society brand story and and your journey you know leading leading the company through that? So maybe maybe one last thing that I I think is really important. If you're an entrepreneur and if you're a founder, know that you can't do it alone. And what I mean by that is you need a strong team around you and. We've probably all, all heard the phrase that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. 
And I think that that is a surefire way to make sure that a business stays small. You need to make sure that you have a good team around you because all of us as entrepreneurs only have so many skill sets. Me as one entrepreneur and one person, I could take two approaches. I could say, you know what? I'm the CEO of this company and it's either my way or the highway. Or I can have really smart people around me and make sure that I'm listening to what they have to say. And they have an element of expertise that maybe I don't have. It's only in my own best interest to make sure that I am allowing them to come to me with ideas and thoughts and me being wise enough to listen to them. Um, One of the people that I, I admire so much is Ray Dalio. He's a big finance guy right in New York. And and, um, and although it's very di- different business from society, he talks about cultivating a team and, and, and having the right people in place. And, and I feel like that's one thing that we've done well at society. The biggest reason why we've been able to grow so much is because it's not just me, it's about the entire team. And the more entrepreneurs embrace a team effort, it takes an element of humility because all of us need to put our egos at the door and say, you know what? This is what I'm, I'm great at. Yes, I'm the CEO, but I want to have people that um, are smarter than me in the area of mergers and acquisitions. They're smarter than me in the area of digital marketing and have those right people in place. And then you could really build and scale a business because it's very hard to scale a business just simply by doing it yourself. I think that's, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> So I'll, I'll close it out here with uh, a, a traditional closing question that, that we ask everyone on the show, which is probably completely unrelated to what we talked about so far, but for your, your favorite hidden gem in the area, for, for something throughout Northeast Ohio, in Cleveland, in Canton, you know, wherever that, that, that folks may not know about, but perhaps they should. Bender's Restaurant in uh, Canton. So, so, so that is, uh, that's a great restaurant um, that my wife and I go to in downtown Canton. So I would say that's a, that's a great high-end restaurant. It's been around for, I think, over a hundred years and it's got great food and it's a really pleasant experience. So at least around Canton, people know vendors. So it's not like that big of a secret, but that would be um, certainly one that I would mention for those that maybe aren't aware. Awesome. I just want to thank you again, Michael, for taking the time to, to come on and, and share your story. It's really impressive and, and fun to watch the work that, that you're doing at Society Brands. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeffrey. Appreciate everything that you're doing at Lay of the Land. If people had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, so um, the best way to get a hold of us is... Uh, our, our website, societybrands.com, there's a, a contact us page. If there's a question specifically to me, maybe the best thing to do is just say, um, please send this to Michael. And then somebody on our team will literally forward that over to me. And I'd be happy to uh, I'd be happy to reach out. Perfect. Well, thank you again. All right. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. 
Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.